0: Why Do We Do That?, a psychology podcast that deconstructs human behavior from the perspectives of social scientists, psychologists, and others that use applied psychology in their field. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Moyer. In this episode, I talk to Dr. Christopher Hafen. Chris is an associate professor of psychology at Northern Virginia Community College. His research background deals with adolescence, peer relationships, and identity development. Chris and I had a discussion about a variety of topics related to adolescent social development. One of which is this shift that we've seen in the past 30 years away from in person social interaction to a more digital or online environment. And I think it's important to pay attention to to that shift because I think it's fundamentally altered how, how young people learn to socialize. I think I think the data is pretty clear that there is a lot more social anxiety associated with social interactions than they're used to and I think uh, I think a lot of that can be attributed to uh, this preferred modality of, of interacting via whether it's text or through gaming um, that that these interactions have become the new norm and and they're not necessarily what uh, the, the type of interaction that has historically formed or built uh, the ability for young people to interact in a social environment. We also talked about the role that parents play in this process of emotional and social development. So even though I'm not a parent, I think that aside from keeping your children healthy and providing them a sense of structure, uh, the most important thing that parents do for their kids is to help them categorize their emotions to walk them through their feelings in real time when they encounter a stressful event or something that bothers them. And as we touched on in this episode, social rejection is one of those specific domains that if a young teen is unequipped to handle, you can see some massive uh, long-term consequences. And it's interesting because parents can serve as a model for the inner monologue that teens need in order to deal with these types of stressors. So if a young teen, for example, is uh, upset because their friend is, hasn't texted them back for a few hours and, you know, maybe they vent to their parents saying, you know, so-and-so isn't, isn't responding to my text, parents have this opportunity to, to help their child challenge these ideas. So how do you know that, how do you know their phone hasn't died? Uh, How do you know they're just not busy? You know, why do you think that it is uh, it's something personal with you? Um, All of these questions are what makes a healthy inner monologue uh, to help uh, teenagers challenge these sort of um, negative beliefs that they hold. So I hope you enjoy our discussion. Chris and I are, uh, aside from having gone to graduate school together, we're also very close friends. And you can tell by some of the uh, friendly ribbing that goes on during this discussion. Uh, But I hope you enjoy it. Let's get right into it. Um, You have an extensive research history looking at, uh, at adolescence uh, uh, and friendships and stuff like that um, related to de- the area of developmental psychology. So why don't you just set it up for us? What um, What are uh, some of the key developments that occur during adolescence?
1: Yeah, so I, I think the, the interesting thing is, um, you know, adolescence really hasn't been a thing for that long. So if you go back to the early 1900s in this country, when um, school became mandatory for everyone then you had this period where instead of teenagers going into the workforce suddenly they were expected to go to school and that meant they had time to a prolonged period of time where they were allowed to kind of be immature and and so the adolescents that we know now you know didn't always exist so um so what as, a- what
0: ages are we talking about here
1: Well, it depends, but typically people think of adolescence as sort of the onset of puberty until, you know, roughly 18 um, is, is sort of typically thought of as the period of adolescence and puberty is happening earlier at at an earlier age now than it did. But, you know, you you figure somewhere around 12 or 13, typically. So um, in terms of, of, of key, key markers or key, key tasks, really the, the, Number one thing on on on, um, on stage is is the development of identity and development of sort of a, a coherent sense of identity and for most people, especially nowadays, that's not going to end in adolescence. It's it's going to be something that's that started in um, kind of that early adolescent um, stage and and it's going to continue for quite a while. Um, and then obviously you know, as that identity is developing part of the, the sort of secondary cast or the development of of intimate relationships and an understanding of what it means to to be in an intimate relationship. Um, and that that comes online really largely with with friendships first, usually, and then um and then later romantic relationships.
0: So identity seems like it could mean a lot of different things, right? You could have yeah. you, you could have you know, social roles, personality traits, um, mm-hmm. what, what, are, are there specific key, uh, pieces of identity that, that need to come online? And if, if, if there isn't enough, uh, uh, if there isn't a cohesive enough identity that it tends to leads to lead to negative outcomes?
1: Yeah. I mean, um, well, really, if you, if you think about identity as, um, uh, you know identity as you as you point out is multifaceted so talking about it abstractly doesn't really work and um but if you if you if you just take uh the personality is a good starting point because that that really starts to develop um well really by the end of infancy we we have a sense of self that's starting to develop recognizing that we are different than other people um and we're born uh, with uh Different researchers call it different things, but most people agree that we're born with a, a temperamental style, meaning, you know, some of us are more <clears throat> prone to overstimulation and some of us and, you know, those people tend to, as they get older, uh, tend to develop more of what, what you might call in terms of personality, uh, introversion or, or, um, you know, kind of just being less comfortable in, in novel social situations, um, Others of us, you know, will soak up any information in the environment. And, and so we tend to be, you know, more social and, and more willing to engage in, in random acts um, with other people. And as we get into adolescence, you have this kind of weird compilation of things where we have more freedom. So we have more time to interact with others socially. Um, we have greater kind of cognitive ability. So we we understand things in more abstract terms. And so we can think about ourselves in in these different ways. And so um, in terms of identity development, what that means is, is we've got more opportunity to explore who we are, and who we are in in different, um, you know, spheres, who we are in school, who we are with friends, who we are uh, internally, which, you know, we may or may not share that with everybody. Uh, and at the same time we're, you know, internally we're, we've got hormones and and everything going on. That's just sort of changing our physical appearance. It's changing how we think about the world. And, and so, you know, it's, it's really that internal process that sort of sparks a curiosity that, that sort of leads people to this, this, You know, kind of notion that that there's something about them that's unique and figuring out how to explore that while at the same time we want to fit in. So, um, you know, and that's oftentimes stunting our ability to actually explore this notion of of development in terms of identity. So, you know, I think talking about one aspect would be difficult because they're all interrelated in the sense that that they all sort of encompass who we are and how we're developing in the world. But the social aspects are certainly uh, really key.
0: So, so this, if, if I'm interpreting what you're hearing correctly, now more than ever, uh, it's been easier to get feedback about ourselves in terms of our identity, right? So, you know, now, obviously, when you and I were youngsters,
1: uh, we didn't have all this yeah, they don't, don't social they media use the term youngsters anymore. Yeah. So <laughs> <I don't, laughs> is is that outdated?
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, when, when we were uh, when we were uh, uh, tots when we were. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, that's better. Okay. Is that better? um yeah. when, when we were. Uh, so, you know, when we were uh, younger, we I mean, we had we were exposed, uh, exposed, you know, I'm I'm 37. You're around that age. We were exposed to a little bit of social media and and, you know, and social media does kind of, it it, it provides this breeding ground for understanding uh, others easily because you have profiles instead of having to dig through conversation. But to the same point, you can learn more about yourself because you have to fill out this profile and you have to put up, you know, uh, decorate it. And and back in the day when it was my space, you would decorate it. but um, but, um, so, in terms of where we are now versus where we were 20, 30 years ago, um, is, it, is, it, is it possible that, that being able to um, – th- that because we're exposed to all this potential information about ourselves and we're ramping up our ability to understand ourselves, is, is it possible that that makes us more self-focused in a negative way?
1: Yeah, I think, um, I think there's two things. One is it gives you more of an opportunity to, um, it, it, like as you put it, you get more information, but, but you're also getting more information in a very superficial way. So, you know, to really kind of understand, um, I mean, to understand yourself, but also to understand others and, and to really get into the depths of that development of identity you know, it's, it's more than just, you know, I like to do this and that person likes to do this, but then that person doesn't like to do that. It's, it's more of like, you know, how does that, how does that get integrated into the complexity of, of, you know, how I feel when, you know, I'm at school and I want to be friends with someone, but they don't, they don't seem to want to be friends with me back. And, and so you do get this, it's, it's almost more of a kind of a, uh, fragile identity development that starts to exist um, because you know you've got you've got a period of development where people are more likely to to sort of put put aside their individual identity to fit in anyway, and that's that's typical in adolescent development. But then now you've got it where you're not doing that in a social situation; you're doing it in a sort of mock social situation where you think something may be going on in terms of how someone's living their life, but they're just showing you snapshots or pieces or, you know, I mean, literally in, in, in some instances, you know, uh, short videos or snapshots of, of what they want you to think is going on in their life. And so you're, you're really just forming this based on your perceptions of what's going on.
0: Um, yeah, th- this is, this is an idea that, that I struggle with too, because, uh, you know, I've talked to, uh, I've talked to lots of folks who uh, a large percentage of their socialization occurs in a gaming setting right. like with a sure. headset. As mm-hmm. their, and so, you know, upside, well, you know, there is some, there is some shared goals, you know, when you're, when you're playing a, sh- a, a, a first person shooter game. Yeah. So, you know, it's not, it's not like it's completely devoid of social benefit. Right. But,
1: right. and it's also it's, a safer environment. You're taking less, personal risks when you're when you're in that environment in terms of the initial entry into the situation
0: right right which right which is which is why you know i'm not going to go on a, a tyra- <laughs> tirade about how how all socialization is taking place in these these gaming settings no right, um sure. I, I think yeah um I, my my concern is that is that even though they're 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 you're actually interacting in real time, it's still missing. There's still kind of a missing social contract. You're not because you're, you know, you're not living in the same city. It's not like you're, you have to coordinate plans to meet up with somebody down this, you know, for dinner or for drinks or something like that. And there is, there's, there's very little nonverbal cue reading, right? right? So with these online presences, you, um, you, you don't go through that process of watching your friend respond to something you said, and then re- and then and then realizing, oh, I shouldn't have said that, right? You have this mm-hmm. just a vo- it's just a headset and a voice. Do you think that uh, like, so do you think that that uh is is having an impact in terms of how people are learning, how how people are applying what they learn in the digital world to face to face interactions?
1: So I, I think there's two things to that. I think um, one thing for sure is this idea of of losing a bit of that um, in the moment, reading the situation, reading reactions uh, you know all that plays heavily into our ability to develop kind of a understanding of emotions and an understanding of you know some of of relationships and and friendships are about. Knowing when you can share your feelings like wholeheartedly and when you have to, you know, pull back on those a little bit because the other person can't either can't handle it or or it's it's not really appropriate given the, the current context. And I think that's missing quite a bit in um, in development, especially in early adolescence now to where that does two things. One, it, it means when you're in a face-to-face interaction and you're actually, you know, having to go through that process, it's, it's more uncomfortable, but it's also, um, there's, uh, a, a discomfort that, that I think adolescents are feeling with, you know, other people than not seeing those cues for themselves. Um, cause they, they can't even recognize them oftentimes in themselves when they're, when they're coming up. And so you see, more anxiety. I mean, the, the spikes in anxiety in particular, um, there are, there are lots of reasons for that, but a, a large part of that I think is just a lack of ability to, to know how to handle that back and forth because it's, you know, you face a lot of, you know, uh, rejection, you face a lot of, um, Kind of personal uh, struggles that come along with social relationships. And when when you formed your ability to understand yourself through a lot of um, social media interaction and a lot of online interaction that doesn't really require that back and forth, uh, you know, then you don't you Mm -hmm. don't necessarily have a script for how to handle, um, you know, when things aren't going well.
0: Right. Uh, so speaking speaking of rejection um, so you Are recently we gonna
1: talk about your dating life now <laughs>
0: yes the, uh, speaking of rejection uh, why am I alone <laughs>
1: uh, I don't think we have time for that today
0: yeah that'll be enough that'll, that'll be for another podcast yeah um, so uh, you had some pretty interesting research um, uh, looking at um, specifically uh, young males and what makes them wh- what causes them to be sensitive to rejection mm-hmm. uh, could you talk a little bit about that
1: yeah so um you know uh, basically I mean from the time you know we we grew up in the 80s so um, you know this is not a, a new thing and and it's 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 maybe a little bit better now but but still if you look at uh, how we sort of talk to boys and girls differently in childhood, it's, it's still very much, um, you know, prevalent. Um, I, you know, I've got a, a six year old and I notice that, um, the way in which, I mean, even myself, but, but certainly family members, everything, every, the way we talk to him is, is different than the way we talk to, um, you know, our, our girls. And, and, and what that does is, is oftentimes we're encouraging, um, expression differently in, in, young boys and girls such that, that girls are often, you know, encouraged or rewarded when they express their emotions verbally. And so we're, we're essentially training them to think about their emotions and discuss their emotions and process them in a, in a more linguistic way. Whereas, um, we don't often encourage that in the same way with boys. Instead, we, um, you know, it's, it's sort of this kind of stereotypical view going way back of like, you know, it's, it's better for, for, you know, a boy to learn to kind of hold their emotions in. And when they experience frustrations, you know, we give them more leeway to express those physically, you know, whether it's, you know, acting out or, um, or, you know, whatever the, the method may be, we encourage them into sports that are more active and girls into, Um, you know, activities that that typically require a little bit more kind of patience and thought as they're going through the process. And so as boys get older, they don't really have typically the same skill set for dealing with frustrations, particularly for dealing with, um, you know, frustrations in a social situation where, you know, it's not okay for a 13-year-old boy to act out physically when they experience frustration the same way that, that they learned when they were maybe four or five, and so they don't really have a a, a good toolkit to, to work with, and so when they get into uh, romantic relationships, and this is um a lot, largely what uh, that that research was was discussing is, you know, when they experience frustration as we all do in a romantic relationship. Um, they, their, their method for dealing with that often goes back to what is automatic and internal for them, which um, in extreme cases is, is what often leads to, to violence in, in relationships, but in even less extreme cases, they, they don't really know how to handle rejection. They don't really know if, if they're, you know, not getting what they want. They don't know how to, how to go about that, and so if you you know think about identity, they don't have a coherent identity that sort of gives them a toolkit for dealing with the with the rejection, and and you know that gets in the way of, of how they process that that frustration. So that's
0: yeah, that's very interesting. Now, does uh does this so are there are there skills on for for females that um are neglected in the same way that for boys so what from what i'm hearing is that there is mm-hmm. this there's this um you know b- based on whatever gender norms th- uh this type of behavior in boys of expressing themselves emotionally is isn't isn't fostered is there a similar version of that for girls
1: yeah, it's so with girls. It's sort of the reverse. Um, it's it's the same it's the same coin, I guess, but the other side, which is that if you're if you're constantly asked to evaluate your feelings and think about your feelings um, rather than sort of getting the leeway to express frustrations in a in a more outward way, um, what starts to happen is you start to end that process starts to get internalized, and so as you get older, and this this could be true for for boys just as much as girls, it's just uh, the the nature of it tends to be more prevalent in girls. Um, As you get older, when you experience frustration in a, a friendship, in a romantic relationship at school, because maybe you're struggling in a subject, instead of thinking outwardly or talking to other people about those frustrations, it, it starts to become an internal process that's almost defeating. And so you develop this mentality that you're not good enough or that you're not able enough. And um, some of that work that, that you mentioned earlier found that for, for girls that experienced um, uh, sensitivity towards rejection in early adolescence as they moved through adolescence, if that sensitivity increased, meaning like maybe they had struggles in friendships or relationships that was creating more of that internal struggle, then they tended to develop very submissive styles in relationships, meaning th- they started to, you know, put aside what they wanted or what they thought was best and instead just adopted whatever their partner uh, felt like was was appropriate or what right. their partner uh, wanted. and. So, you know, in, in a totally opposite way, those those two types of, you know, those two archetypes, the the male who's overly dominant. And that's all they know how to do in terms of handling relationships and the female who starts to develop sensitivity and then internalize everything. Um, you know, that's where you get sort of the the the, you know, sort of early adult relationship or late adolescent relationship that's really, you know, Maladaptive for both, but um, where they're both kind of getting what they want out of the relationship because that's what they've they've learned to to kind of orient to in the world. So
0: when I first started hearing about this research, you know, my mind went to, uh, oh well, this, oh this is this sounds like it's something that would be, um, that would a, a process that would start much earlier on with parental relationships, right? Mm-hmm. So in, in the same way that, um, you know, kids have an attached, they have attachment to their parents. Um, that's the first r- real intimate relationship they have. And that's, and, and, and it's, it's at the parental level that, that, that where you develop either, you know, if you're, you know, if your parent is too, Um, overbearing then you end up being risk averse and it's overstimulated if your parent is distant then you tend up you end up being in sort of chaotic relationships as you get older so how how much of this is 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 driven by the by the parental relationship versus the social relationships that develop along the way in terms of friends
1: yeah so there's there's, there's definitely, uh, you know, the, the early markers are those, those, you know, parental relationships, those sibling relationships, those sort of core family relationships that exist, um, because that sets your expectation. So once, you know, if you, um, you know, If you're an infant and you, you know, need food or you uh, are learning to walk and you fall and you hurt yourself and, and you have somebody there, typically a parent, that gives you the food or that helps you up and gives you a hug and makes you feel better. You start to learn that you can go out and explore the world, and and that everything's gonna be okay. Like if something happens, I've I've got people in my life that, um, and you're not thinking this at the time, but that's the expectation that starts to form. So, um, when you go into you know co- uh, school and preschool or kindergarten, and you know you're learning about peer relationships, you're going in with the best possible circumstances because you're expecting good things and you know, throughout life, if you expect good things, typically you're more likely to experience good things. Um, if the, 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 the opposite happens, like you said, if you have a parent who's distant, um, and avoidant, or if you have a parent who's constantly, you know, not letting you do anything and never develop a sense of autonomy, then you go into those same early peer, uh, interactions, uh, not expecting the world to work out perfectly. And so you carry those perceptions with you into the social sphere. And surely, if you look at um, adolescence, what you'll see as people start to form relationships is there's a pretty good bit of consistency. It's a, uh, you know, it's a, in sort of mathematical terms, statistical terms, it's a, a correlation that tends to be somewhere around 0.5 or 0.6, which means you're carrying a big deal of consistency, but there's still a lot of variants that, you know, aren't explained by Early parent relationships, and and that's just kind of the notion that they set the stage, but they're certainly not a determinant. Um, th- but it's you know it's a this set of expectations that forms that that can be very difficult to overcome. And if you look at um, you know I teach uh, I teach um, developmental psychology at a community college now, and and you know when I talk to 19 and 20 year olds about attachment and about the consistencies of attachment as they move into adolescence and and into early adulthood. Inevitably, I have a handful of students come up after class and say, you know, I never thought about how my parents reacted towards me when I was little and, and why it has such a big impact over how I I am now and it's it's like mind-blowing to who to who thunk yeah who right. da, who the, yeah it's like who yeah you're, you know what your parents <laughs> do matters it's you know so um but there's but there's always cases and um and always opportunities to, to kind of come come past or move past uh those early experiences it's just it's very difficult because they they set sort of automatic expectations that if you're not you know accessing them and becoming aware of them they can they, they can start to sort of lead your life for you rather than you making the decisions yourself.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, so your research basically suggests that when, when these young boys uh, don't have an outlet to uh, expressing themselves emotionally, it, it, it basically can corrode how they end up having romantic relationships. Now,
1: Or more, more specifically how they deal with the stress in those romantic relationships.
0: Right. Okay. Right. The rejection, right. The rejection piece. Right. Okay. Uh, so, um, so what is, uh, what, what are the, what is this happy medium? So if we're, if we're observing, right, that, that, um, the the big issue with boys is that they don't have an opportunity to express themselves emotionally the issue with girls is that they might, uh, internalize, uh, mm-hmm. uh, stress from rejection and, and that doesn't have, that, that leads to negative outcomes. W- what is the, the happy medium here? And is it the same hap- Is it the same for males and females?
1: Um, you know, that's a good question. I think, uh, the, the, as is the case with most, you know, social science, um, the truth is that it's more complex than that. So there is no one's, you know, script for how to go about it. I think the, the two things that are, that are vital are one, uh, you know, early on with, with parents, with teachers, um, kind of the awareness that always following the same script doesn't usually work. So if you're always using the same way to deal with a child, who's, acting out or, um, a child who's shy and you're, you're doing the same things over and over and over what you're, what you're doing is, is really not giving them a proper access to kind of a wide range of, of ways to, to overcome their struggle. So, uh, you know, a really shy kid, you know, there's not one way to make them less shy. You're not going to sort of change their, their internal kind of way of, of operating, but you've got to try different strategies to kind of unlock that a little bit. Um, you know, a boy who's constantly acting out, um, is incredibly frustrating, uh, for teachers, for parents, for other kids that they have to interact with. And, but, but the key is how do you deal with that frustration and how do you find different strategies? So some of that's gotta be, you know, talking to the, the child and, and trying to access like what's going on when you're upset, why are you, um, why are you going about doing that? And some of the strategies got to be just give them more opportunities on a daily basis to be more active. So maybe some of that physical frustration isn't just sort of exploding um, in a situation where they become frustrated um,
0: as yeah, they get older.
1: Oh, go ahead.
0: Well, especially for for boys, is, you know, they the, the, the there's been minor changes to the school environment over the past sure Uh, you know 30 40 years well probably longer than that but just they're it's the actual structure of school doesn't even have an outlet for some of their physical energy right no and Um, that's
1: and that's true not just of boys but but um but for girls it's just uh you know the the especially the early elementary um setup it's it's it doesn't doesn't jive well with what we know about where they are in terms of development um it's always this constant battle between academic development and social development but the the truth is at that age the academic stuff is only really optimally accessed if you give them proper opportunities to to deal with the social environment and to be physical and to um you know, sort of access kind of the, the emotion regulation abilities that are coming online at four and five. And so, yeah, I've um, seen
0: these, I've seen these, you know, uh, hypo, these uh, schools that, that have this uh, extreme view of education where it's kind of uh, heavily, heavily free play and, mm-hmm. and low on the academics. And, 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 you know, at first glance, it's like, wow, look at look at all the, the interacting and the play, like based on on what we know about how play has such positive impacts for. So I'm, I'm actually teaching um, uh, I'm teaching a course now called Psychology of Play. And, mm-hmm. you know, they're sim- simply playing has tons of cognitive benefits, physical right. benefits that, you know, it, it it's not learning arithmetic, but. Right. it's, it's equally important and probably more important to have that before you
1: get into the arithmetic. Um, right. But, but then the question becomes what well, some point in education, you've also got to, um, teach the ability of it kind of inhibiting, you know, what you want to do versus what is required of you. And, mm-hmm. you know, part of, part of that, Radical approach of going all the way to that side would be, you know, you'd also have to include opportunities for them to start to, to learn those abilities. You get some of that in social interaction because you you can't always get your way with other kids, but um, well, you know, so having to actually sit and focus on something um, that's directed by an adult or by another um, member of the classroom, you know, there is functional there, there is functional development happening in those circumstances as well. So
0: um I I'm not not advocating for you know the extreme play school versus something more traditional but uh you you're touching you touched on something interesting the um this the self-regulatory piece of 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 child development mm-hmm. um even I would I would make the argument that even in these even in these open play settings to a certain extent, you are still learning self-regulation, right? You've got sure. – because through through interacting with kids, you know, if you learn – if a kid, put, you know, um, doesn't like something you did physically or, or verbally, they, they might walk away, they might push them, and you get live, you know, contingencies. They're learning, oh, I sure. can't do that. Maybe I, maybe I can't do that. Maybe I need to tone it down or something like that. Um, but, yeah, I, I hear what you're saying about, you know, a balance between the structure of well, traditional and the, schooling the, and, and the play of, of the, open.
1: The truth of that also is that that really requires um, very savvy and in touch adults mm-hmm. that can manage those circumstances without letting those circumstances get out of hand. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you just think about our culture now is we, we safeguard kids way too much around everything So imagine, you know, if you if you took that and, and, you know, implemented that setting where you had teachers who were kind of checked out, as unfortunately often happens in the education profession because of various factors. But and then you had kids just free playing and you had kids in the classroom who had behavioral problems. And you could just imagine how that could get out of hand really quickly as well, if that's all they were ever doing. And they weren't very well regulated. So. Um, You know, it's like anything else. I think it's a balance. But I do think more opportunities towards um, that aspect of development would certainly enhance um, what we were talking about, which is this notion of figuring out, you know, how how do you start to enable kids to develop their identity, especially in the social sphere, a little bit earlier rather than, you know, they get to adolescence and they start getting into romantic relationships and they, they really just don't, they don't know what to do. They don't know how to do. And, you know, given what we know about how they interact with, with friends in later childhood and, and adolescence, mostly electronically, you know, they're not getting the opportunities there. So, so school really should be the opportunity, especially early school should be the opportunity to, to start to foster those processes.
0: Yeah. So, um, I would recommend anyone listening to check out The Coddling of the American Mind um, by Jonathan Haidt, um, who's a social psychologist, um, uh, which is similar to my background. But um, it was a a fantastic argument for how um, children that were born uh, roughly in the mid to late 90s, where they don't have a world without Internet, Um, that, that's, that's where we're seeing this, um, this, this profile of, um, of being extremely sensitive to social situations, lacking what, what you would call grit and stuff like that. Um, definitely worth checking that out. Um, so let's, uh, let's talk about, uh, friendship in general a little bit. So, um, and this doesn't just have to be adolescence, uh, obviously, but, um, you know, the traditional question, is it, you know, is it number of friends or is it just quality of friends? Is the, uh, do, do we, do we know, is, is that question answered, uh, yeah, as of now? Well,
1: is it, is it answered? I mean, it does depend on what, what aspect, but, uh, by and large, when it comes to, um, physical health, when it comes to emotional health, when it comes to mental health, um, it, it always comes back to, and this is true in early childhood. This is true in later childhood, adolescence, or even into adulthood. Um, it's really just about quality of friendships. And, and more than that, it's, it's really about, um, having key people in your life. And, and when I say people, it's important thing about friendships that they're, they're horizontal. We, we sort of, delineate between horizontal and vertical relationships in, in childhood, where, um, you know, you don't have a choice who your parents are. You, you don't, you know, I mean, to some extent, you you might, uh, in in certain circumstances, but for the most part, you know, that that relationship is very, um, you know, top down. They they set the standards and you sort of live by them. And and friendships give us this opportunity to to interact with someone else and we can share. What we want to share and, and you know interact with them in the way we want to interact with them, and you can have lots and lots of friends, but if you don't have friends that you know when something goes down and you really need someone, if you don't have people that you know you can count on, um, you you tend to struggle, and that's a, that's at any this stage of life, and and when you do have people you can count on, it turns out we can we're pretty resilient, we can get through just about anything. Um, as long as we do have those people in our life, that those those handful of people, and for most people, that's not going to be this big, huge network. Um, they're going to be key people in your life that you know you know you can go to with the good or the bad, and um, they're going to give you that response that that you need. They might not be able to fix it, but they're they're going to be able to to help you see things in the the way that's going to help you move forward. So um, Yeah, so
0: we, uh, so th- that makes sense to me um the w- one thing that I'm I'm starting to realize um, now is that um, obviously with um, with Instagram being such a, a a big thing in terms of how people are connected mm-hmm. um, that uh, that the collective nature of, of gathering friends and 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 people that are that you're uh, that you follow on social media, like the collective piece where it feels like, you know, oh, I want, I want as many as I can. Mm-hmm. I want to, you know, I, I want to, Oh, Oh, you know, you should follow me, you know, within the first three minutes of meeting somebody, they're telling right. you to, to follow them on social media. It's like, they're yeah. just, uh, that, that as you, as this network grows, um, each individual relationship seems like it takes a hit. It, it gets more and more fragile. And I had a thought the other day that, like, is this – I think networking the, – the, the concept of networking is partially to blame, right? That, that this idea that I think, I think young people, when they hear the word networking, instead of thinking developing deep relationships with people, they see it as network. Oh, network means make contact and then share and, and then make sure they follow you on social media,
1: well, there's there's two sides to that because one could be you could argue that um, <clears throat> the the wider your network, the larger your network, the more your opportunities are for finding yeah. and and deeply connecting with people that um, that could turn into very valuable close friends. Um, I don't think that tends to happen very often. I think you're right that that's much more of this. Um, let me build my numbers in my network so that when I post a photo, I can get the random, you know, the extra random 50 likes that will, you know, consistently make me look like, you know, I've got this, you know, this huge circle of friends. Um, the, the downside more than that is really, you know, we don't we don't post a whole lot of our true self on Instagram or, you know, really any form of social media. Um, and in fact, in most cases, they're restricted to sort of snapshots in ways that don't really allow you to to sort of fully communicate what's going on with you. And so, um, you know, when you do post something really amazing, you do tend to get, you know, that that, you know, a, a decent number of that network to, to respond to it when you post something that's maybe a little bit more um, something you're struggling with you tend to get less of a response. And so it's it's sort of this, you know, kind of weird uh, interaction where you're not really getting the back and forth. You're just getting, you know, you're, you're just getting what um, sort of feedback that, that you know, we don't really care to know all of you. We just care to know, you know, cool things that are going on or cool funny videos or, you know, and you almost have friends that you know when they, when they post something, it's like eh, scroll versus friends that you're like, oh, it's, it's, you know, cause when we go on social media, we're going for an escape. We're not going to like really dive into reality. We're going cause we're kind of trying to get away from reality for a little bit.
0: Right. Right. <clears throat> um, so, uh, yeah, I, I, I think, um, uh, some on top of that, uh, there is this, um, somewhat kind of dangerous tendency that I'll see now and then where it's where people are like uh, using social media as a cry for help, well, which is yes. which yeah. is not a good <laughs> it, it's not a, a really good vehicle if, if you're if you're you know that that's the, this is something that that you need to be calling a friend or or talking yeah. to them in person. and if we've convinced ourselves that this type of socializing is is normal, then when something serious comes about we we don't really we're not going to get the the outcome we need we're not going to get that actual friend conversing and putting their arm around you you're just going to get a a, some you'll get some comments that are that are more fluff right
1: yeah i mean you know if you go back to the um you know and i i say this to my kids at times because it was it was wired into me when i was younger it was like this notion of like you know, don't cry wolf, because then when the wolf comes, it's, you know, no one's going to be there for you. You know, it's, it's kind of this, this, you get used to, to anytime something's struggling, you turn it into this bigger thing, because it does get some response from sort of the social media sphere. And for the moment, it feels good, because it's like, okay, good, people are on my side. But then, you know, that that only lasts for a period of time until people start to get frustrated by that. And, and then, you know, you may actually be struggling. I mean, there's certainly an element of people that do that because they don't have any other way of reaching out. And then, but when it, when it really gets down to the point where they're like at home with a, a bottle of alcohol and pills and, and they mm-hmm. put out a post, like they're not going to get the same response that they got when they first started doing that, you know, maybe six months before that. Um, it's yeah. also easier if you're even if you're a friend of the person to sort of treat it anonymously rather than like if I had a friend call me and say, hey, you know, I'm really struggling today and, uh, you know, I'm just I'm feeling really depressed and uh, I just haven't been feeling myself for a long time. I'd, I'd respond to that very differently than if I saw a friend post something to that effect on, you know, some version of social media. Um right. And it's kind of that depersonalization that we were talking about earlier. That's mm-hmm. that's it's it's sort of part and parcel of how most uh, most teenagers grow up communicating now. It's just they don't they're not used to a face to face interaction in the way that um, that at times, you know, might be more beneficial or more helpful.
0: Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> let's bring everything full circle. Right. So let's say um, let's say you're a. You're a parent and uh, you want you, you've got a few things you're juggling. One of them is uh, making sure that your children are uh, are able to express themselves um, emotionally. Um, you want to make sure that they have effective friendships. Um, do you have any any or is there any practical advice that you could give if, if the, uh, to, a, to a parent to achieve some of these these key goals?
1: Well, I think, so, there, you know, there's there's two ways um, that, that I I think parents tend to approach this. One is this um, notion of, well, you know, I didn't have a cell phone growing up, so you're not going to get a cell phone, and I'm mm-hmm. not going to let you have a cell phone, and, you know, this really hardline approach, which doesn't really work um, for mm-hmm. various reasons. Really, you're just, it's like, hey, I'm not going to teach you how to handle this functionally. I'm just going to help you avoid it until you leave. Right. And then you're going to just explode into that. You know, the notion of like a restrictive parent whose whose child goes to college and just gets hammered all the time. Um, the the other side of that is to be more indulgent. And, and you know, I'm going to be and this is, I think, more typical of how parents tend to treat their adolescents now is it's you know, I want to be your best friend. I want you to tell me everything. And, you know, if, if, if something's going on, I want you to share it with me and, you know, it's okay. I'll never judge you. I'll never, you know, and, you know, that doesn't ultimately work terribly well either because you're, you're not really giving um, them an ability to sort of think about what is right, what isn't right, what makes sense, what doesn't make sense. You're you're not really giving them the, the toolkit for for figuring out how to manage um, that transition into to romantic relationships or, or social relationships in general. And yeah, so, yeah, you, you have to,
0: you know, friendships, you know, you don't go into friendships trying to raise someone. You're not, right. I, I mean, right. I right. you know, you don't have like, a, oh, my friend here, I'm trying to trying to you know t- teach him confidence and right. uh, you know you know no you're, you you your friends you're kind of non-judgmental about and because you want to just because it, it's kind of this back and forth relationship i like your company you like my
1: company yeah. but we're not
0: going to get too involved in each other's uh, each other's lives but uh, right. so go, and, and
1: and you see this like uh, you know uh, uh, teenagers at much higher rates than before. I, there was a, a book recently uh, similar to, to hate's book about um, what was it? It was, oh, it was uh called iGen. It was basically this notion of, of uh, people born after 1995, they they're less likely to look forward to getting their driver's license. Mm-hmm. They're
0: yeah.
1: um, more likely to, to um, you know, uh, go to go to dinner with their parents You know, they're 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 basically their 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 parents are more friends of theirs, and their parents will drive them around longer. And you know, I mean, most of us for our generation, that was like the biggest thing we couldn't wait for is to get that independence. And it wasn't because we didn't love our parents or anything like that. It was just, you know, that was a big marker when we could go interact socially uh, on our own without needing our parents to drive us there or without needing to sort of find alternative forms. And and now that most of that interaction doesn't happen socially necessarily it, it's just not the same and so I think the the middle ground is you know I mean that you know I, I wouldn't presume to to tell any parent this is what you should do because I don't I don't think it's that cut and dry and I'm certainly not the 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 person to be telling people what to do but um, the ideal is you know you really need to conversation is key so that you know and this is throughout childhood but especially in, in adolescence is finding ways And each teenager will be different in this. But finding ways to have conversations about that process of identity development. So if you find out they're interested in something, trying to engage them in that aspect. Uh, If you find, uh, you know, they have a new friend or, you know, uh, every uh, uh, parent's probably worst nightmare when they start, you know, getting excited about romantic relationships and dating. You know, finding ways to sort of check your uh, preconceptions about all that at the door and just try to engage them in conversation because I think the, the thing they miss in friendships now that maybe used to be there is that, that dialogue about, you know, what's going on and taking what's internal and putting it into a conversation. And by doing that, you're, you're setting them up at least to, to think about what's going on um, and in terms of friendships, then that that's that kind of encouraging that behavior is going to be more likely than to lead to that behavior consistently in their other relationships. So I think that's the but doing that without sort of sacrificing the fact that that you are the parent in that role. So you you still set the, the expectations. And so that, that's a hard dynamic to really to balance to give autonomy but also have that connection there that's it's, it's it's a yeah. it's a difficult role it's, it's still so different with each teenager some teenagers are going to be more um you know more likely to push back but it's also something you can't just start as when they're teenagers because if that process hadn't been there throughout childhood then it's just going to come across as fake and false and and teenagers are really good at picking up on that
0: okay well um well uh, i think uh, you feel good
1: I feel okay.
0: All right. Well, uh, I think we're gonna wrap it up. Uh, thanks. Thanks for coming on. Uh, it was a, a great conversation.
1: Yeah, I appreciate the time. And uh, you know, next time you have a failed relationship, you you can feel free to call me.
0: Oh, uh, we're we'll, posted we'll on
1: social media, whichever you prefer. Yep.
0: Yeah. I'll, I'll do. But I'll, I'll I'll send an Instagram of me with a sad face, uh, <laughs> e- 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 eating ice cream That'll on be the my couch. Cue. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Take care, my friend.
1: right, see you later, buddy.
0: Hopefully you enjoyed this episode. If so, head over to iTunes and give us a review and rating. Uh, That definitely helps with iTunes popularity. Also, you can visit our Facebook page. Go to Facebook, type in why do we do that, and click like. Uh, I always post episode reminders as well as some articles uh, occasionally related to uh, the, the prior episode. You can also email me at why do we do that at gmail.com. That's why do we do that podcast at gmail.com. Uh, until next time. Uh, This is Dr. Ryan Moyer, hoping you found some answers to the question, why do we do that?